what is the defining virtue of a life that pleases God? Purity? Hope? Zeal for God's glory? Wisdom? Those are all wonderful virtues. We could name many more. But is there, is there one virtue that should characterize our lives above all un- others and under which all other virtues are nestled? Is there a chief virtue? The answer to that question is there is. And it is love. Love is the defining virtue of the Christian life. This morning, I I hope to accomplish several things. Number one, I want you to know that love is the defining virtue of the Christian life. Number two, I want you to know what love is. Love means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And if we are to obey this, we need to understand it biblically. And then number three, I want you to know how to pursue it. So I want you to know that love is the defining virtue of the Christian life. I want you to know what love is and I want you to know how to pursue it. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue in our series through this excellent book to messy sinners who have become saints like us. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm actually going to begin with the last phrase of verse 12 and read through our entire text for this morning. And I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek his own. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. There are three movements in this text. The supremacy of love in verses 1 through 3. The description of love in verses 4 through 7. And the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. So let's go through each one. Why does Paul feel the need to cover the supremacy of love? It's because the Corinthians needed it. The Corinthians were gifted in many ways. Verses chapter 1, verse 5 says that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. The Corinthians were quite a gifted church. But the Corinthians were also quite an immature church. They were theologically immature. Big word, which just means, what do we believe about God? They were theologically immature. In many ways, the wisdom of the world formed their thinking more than the wisdom of God, which is characterized by the gospel. They were morally immature. So what what characterized their life, their actions, their behavior was not godliness and holiness which should and must characterize a Christian. What characterized their behavior was, was license and looseness. So they're morally immature. They're relationally immature. There was really a, a, a self-focus in the church of Corinth instead of a focus on the well-being of their fellow church members. And corporately, when they came together for worship, they were immature. So when they came together, their corporate gatherings were disorderly and distracting and not edifying. And so the Corinthians were in need of a good talking to, if you will. And Paul has been doing that since chapter 1. But in many ways, everything that he has been saying has actually been leading to and building up to this chapter. He wants to show them a more excellent way. Chapter 12, verse 31b. And what is that more excellent way? It is the supremacy of the way of love. Verses 1 through 3, again, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So what is this better way? It's love. 
Paul says three things here. I wonder if you noticed it. He said, the most impressive speech minus love is nothing. The most impressive gifts minus love is nothing. And the most impressive personal sacrifice minus love is nothing. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Translation, the most impressive speech minus love, nothing. Tongues are a spiritual gift that we're operating in this context in Corinth. To speak in a tongue is to speak in a language that you don't understand. That is pretty impressive. And the Corinthians were pretty impressed with themselves about that impressiveness. But tongues without love is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, in the coronavirus, I just saw a Facebook meme, and it was, it was a video, and it said, me trying to have a private Zoom call, and it was, you know, trying to have just a private professional Zoom call, and then like the next scene was, my kids while I'm trying to have a professional Zoom call, and it was this guy who was just like, chicken in the corn, hey, 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 and it's like, come on. I I can't have a professional Zoom call while this annoying sound is going on in the background. That's like what this is. If you have tongues so impressive in one sense, but they're not operating out of love, it's actually as annoying as that thing. It's, It's like a nails on a chalkboard that makes you want to cringe and just say, stop it. That's the spiritual reality of tongues if they're operating but not operating out of love. Paul says the most impressive gifts minus love equals nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and if I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but don't, I do not have love, I am nothing. He speaks of the gift of prophecy. That's divine revelation given and communicated. Now, Paul exaggerates here because no no prophet knows all mysteries and no prophet knows all knowledge. But even if they did, which they don't, but even if they did, or if someone had the gift of faith in great measure, by the way, that gift of faith is not saving faith. All believers have saving faith. That gift is a gift of faith to believe God for incredible things. Spoken here of faith to believe that mountains can be moved. But even if you, if, even if you knew all mysteries and even if you had a gift of faith that believed God for incredible things and you ventured for him in incredible ways, but apart from love, such incredible knowledge... Such incredible acts of faith are nothing. And then Paul says the most impressive personal sacrifice minus love is nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. I think this personal sacrifice is incredible here. 
The idea is, is a giving away of your possessions for the gospel's sake, out of a heart to see the gospel advance and out of a desire to see the poor fed. And I think the thought here is, is a surrendering of the body to be burned for your faith, to be a martyr. These are incredible things. But Paul says, apart from love, it profits you nothing. When I was at Southern Seminary, a preacher preached this text. And at this point, he said, brothers, I know that you love theology, and that's a good thing. But if you love theology but are unwilling to take the widow to church on Sunday morning, I don't know if you're a Christian. That was the application of this text to a bunch of geeks like me. What warning do you need to hear this morning from these verses? You can be the most faithful in private devotions, but apart from love, profits you nothing. You can strive to raise the most godly kids, but apart from love, profits you nothing. You can give generously to the cause of the gospel, but apart from love? You can stand doggedly against the worldly immorality that characterizes our day, but apart from love? You can share the gospel with everyone you can, but apart from love? Apart from love, these things profit you nothing. I even understand these acts to be explicit acts of faith flowing out of a desire to see God and Jesus Christ be magnified. This does not even speak of a general desire to do good to mankind. That's not even what this is talking about. This is talking about explicit works done out of a desire to see Jesus Christ, his gospel, his work move forward in the world. Those things not down out of love profit you nothing. Okay. Well, if love is that important, then we need to know what love is. And to that, Paul turns in verse 4. Look at verses 4 through 7 again. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Let's just briefly reflect on these things. If this is an orange, let's just squeeze it and let the juice flow out. Love is patient. You know, impatience puts oneself first, thinking that one's own schedule and time should take priority over the needs of others. Love is kind. Harshness. Severity. Meanness, those things are 
Those things are contrary to love. They're contrary to love, especially in light of God's kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Love is not jealous. Jealousy wants what the other guy has. (laughs) Jealousy often leads to resentment, bitterness, anger. Joseph's brothers were jealous because of the favor Jacob showered on him and their jealousy led them to sell him into slavery. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. So love does not go on and on about your accomplishments and your knowledge and your giftedness and your service and your maturity. Let another man praise you, the proverb says, and not your own mouth. Love is not arrogant. This gets at the idea of being puffed up, impressed with yourself. This is one of Paul's most actually recurring descriptions of the Corinthians. He says in chapter 5, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Translation, there's the most heinous sin in your midst and you're puffed up and you think you're something special. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, the text says. So love is not rude or indecent. Love actually doesn't aim to to shock, but it aims to act honorably and in a fitting way in fitting contexts with others. Love does not insist on its own way. So, So love looks to the interests of others. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, Paul says, but that of many that they may be saved. That's love. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable, it's not easily provoked. It's not easily annoyed. It's not easily tweaked or angered or upset. Know this, my beloved brothers, that let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.19 Love is not resentful. So... So I actually like a different translation of this. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. In fact, if you're in the ESV, you can look down at the footnotes and see that that's there as an alternate translation. Resentful's fine. It gets at the same idea. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. So what love doesn't do is love doesn't ruminate on the times when someone has done us wrong. It does not record those in a mental file that is retrieved at appropriate times whenever something else happens. That is keeping a record of wrongs and love does not do that. No, love treats others like God treats us. Love forgives. Love buries. Love covers. Love puts away. Love remembers 
my failings more than your failings. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So love finds pleasure in virtue, and thus love does not delight in evil. So love loves what is good and true and lovely and of good report. And love does not love what is godless or impure or dark or crass or perverse. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does this mean? I'm just going to quote Tom Schreiner because it's so appropriate. These verbs cannot be read to support naivete as if love believes the most improbable or ridiculous things. No. It's not saying that, but it is saying that love does not give way to cynicism or despair, for it believes in the God who gives life to the dead. Love believes and hopes for the best, since it looks to God who can forgive sins and grant a new beginning to those dead in trespasses and sins. So this is not saying you just believe whatever about whoever just based on what they say, even if it's an outright lie. But it is saying that love does not give way to cynicism and despair. How pervasive is that in our world? And in our own hearts. Oh, they don't really believe that. They're just saying that. That's not love. Towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to believe and hope for the best. Because we believe in a God who saves and sanctifies by the power of the gospel. And so we bear with and hope and endure and believe for good things for our brothers and sisters. I just want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, this list is not definitive. In other words, this list is not exhaustive or complete. A lot more things could be said. But this is representative. Number two, and this is hugely important. This is not about psychology. This is about behavior. This is not about what you feel. This is about how you act. This is not about your psychological self. This is about your behavioral self. These are action verbs. What characterizes your life? This is not asking you how you feel alone. This is asking you how you act with everyone. Thirdly, who is this acting directed first and foremost to? In other words, who is to be the object of our love, the recipient of our love? It is the brethren. And we know that because of immediate context. This is sandwiched in between chapters 12 
about the gifts which are given for the edification of the church. And chapter 14, which footstomps in relation to prophecy and tongues, how gifts are to be for the church. Chapter 13's focus is that if gifts are not operating out of love, they're worthless. This is about how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ according to the context. This is about love of the brethren in context. And that should make perfect sense given the love that love of the brethren is the chief mark of the Christian life in the whole New Testament's context. Consider just a few verses. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the, the newborn church, if you will. By, all this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who do, does not love his brother. 1 John 3.10 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 1 John 3.14 We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John four nineteen through 21. Now, just a clarification. Does this mean that we don't have any obligation to love those outside of the church? No, of course it doesn't mean that. But the weight of our obligation to love is towards one another. And so, how are you doing here? How are you doing here? Can you take these descriptions of what love does do and what love doesn't do and can you put names and faces in this room to those descriptions and run it through a grid and say, how am I doing? Can I just tell you as your pastor, overall I think you are doing very well and I am so grateful for that. But can I also tell you as a pastor to excel still more? Can I tell you as your pastor to continue to take this description of love and the priority that we are to give to loving one another and not letting unloving actions, attitudes, and thoughts permeate, but to make sure that we are having loving thoughts, attitudes, and actions towards one another. Can I encourage you, excel still more. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is a very, very fragile thing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And love is what causes it to flourish. But when we do not love, as defined here, it fractures. And it can fracture fast. So praise God, you are doing well. Please continue. Well, Paul goes on to say now, or to teach us now about the permanence of love. 
verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and act like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with selfish or childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's the point of this? The point of this is that gifts will cease, but love will not cease. Gifts will cease in eternity, but love will not cease in eternity. Gifts like prophecy and and knowledge and revelation and tongues, the context that this passage flows out of, those gifts, those gifts are all going to pass away. Why are they going to pass away? Because they are all temporary and they all only reveal God partially. He says in the text, we know in part and we prophesy in part. So we, we know God in part and we prophesy in part. Our knowledge here is not perfect, full, and complete. Let me add a caveat. It is true. We know God truly, but not fully. We know God truly, but not completely. The knowledge we have of him in his word is true and accurate and enough for us now to make our way to the heavenly city, but it is partial. Oh, how many things I do not understand. Oh, how many things you do not understand. That is why we look forward to a coming day, amen? When we will know fully, not, I think, meaning that we will be omniscient like God is omniscient, but meaning that we will see him face to face. We will know him fully, even as now he knows us fully. By the way, isn't that amazing? We are known fully by the God of the universe. So these are temporary, they will pass away, but love will not pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I've already led on to my interpretation of this verse, but the question is, what is the perfect? When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What is that perfect? Well, some have thought it's the completion of the canon, and and some have thought it is when the church reaches full maturity, but neither of these things fit the context. What fits the context is the return of Jesus Christ when he takes us to himself in glory. That is when all that is partial will be done away and the fullness of everything 
will come. And we know that's the case because he then gives this illustration in verse 11 about when I was a child, I thought and reasoned and acted like a child. But when I became a man, I I put away childish things. And then verse 12 is an interpretation of what he gives to us in verse 11, this analogy. He then says, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then in eternity, face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. So now we are in the time of being children, if you will, having a not full, not partial knowledge of these things. And gifts are given to us so that we might know God, but it's partial, but we will become men, if you will. We will become mature, if you will, in eternity, and that is when we will fully know. And then he says, by the way, he's establishing why love is supreme over the gifts. It's because the gifts are going to cease. But love is not going to cease in eternity. Gifts are going to cease, but love is not going to cease. And so he concludes and he says, but now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. In other words, there are three virtues that will continue on into eternity. It is faith, hope, and love. By the way, it is necessary to see some discontinuity and some continuity. Right now, We walk by faith and not by sight, right? We will see him face to face in the coming day. We will not need to live by faith then as we do now. But I think faith will still be operating in the new heavens and the new earth. I think we will always live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we will be believing God for his promises and experiencing them in its fullness. So it says, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. So all of them abide, but the greatest is love. So there's discontinuity between our experience of faith here and our experience of faith there. We will see things there that we do not see here. So too with hope. We hope for what we do not have. Amen? But I think when we're in heaven, we will still continue to hope. Hope in God, in his goodness. That's right. Hope in God, in his goodness, in his grace, and in his glory. We will be experiencing it in the fullness of its sense, but we will still be a In fact, even more be a hopeful people, not because we don't have it, but because of who he is. And of course, the greatest of these is love. Jonathan Edwards said, Brad quoted it this morning as we prayed before the service. Jonathan Edwards said that heaven is a place of love. It's a place where we will all be together in love the fullness of love that's described here. And do you know what the goal is here? To live with one another in a way that is most reflective of how we will live with one another in a coming day. So what is the defining virtue of the Christian life? It's love. It's love. 
And I hope you're being honest with yourself. When we read through that list, I hope there were senses where you said, in your heart, I know we're not an excitable church. Sometimes I wish we were a little bit more excitable. I know in your heart you were saying, "Mm, amen, to some of those descriptions. Yes, you were saying. But then to some other other descriptions, you might have been in your soul squirming just a hair in your seat. And instead of saying amen, saying, oh my. Because no one escapes this list thinking, I love wealth. (laughs) We walk out of this list saying, amen. But we walk out of this list saying, oh my. So what do we do? Can I just tell you, if you are a non-Christian, you need to know, you are not saved by your love for God or for anyone else. You are only saved by His love for you. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you are here as a non-Christian, please do not hear this and think, I need to strive for better behavior. I need to be less angry. No. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You have not loved and you are not loving. True. You have not lived out this virtue. True. But Jesus Christ has. And hence you are not saved by your love. You are saved by Christ's love for you. He left heaven and came down to earth because you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because you did not love your neighbor as yourself. And so he came down to show love to you by thinking not of himself, but by thinking for you, by not counting your trespasses against you and not keeping a record of wrongs, but by wiping away all of your wrongs on the cross. Jesus loved you by living for you and dying for you and rising for you so that you can have life if you will but repent and believe. So don't even think, I need to love God. Think, I need to believe in Jesus Christ. I need to trust in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of my sin. He says he loved me. And he died for me. And he rose for me. And it's mine if I will believe. So believe. And dear Christian, the word to you is actually pretty similar. I want you to resist the impulse of going home and making a list, if you're a list person, 
of making a list of ways you need to love better. I don't want you to write down, I need to be more patient, although you probably do. Better to think, I need to grow in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the sum and substance and source of love. It is he who did not seek his own but died and rose in order that he might seek you. It is he who does not keep a record of wrongs but nailed all our wrongs to the tree. It is he who patiently endured our unbelief and opposition until we bowed our knee in repentance and faith. It is he who is kind to us in not giving us what we deserve. It is he who was not provoked to anger by our sin, but was provoked to leave heaven and live and die for us. It is he who is not provoked to anger by our sin even now, but is provoked to mercy and grace and kindness as he pleads before the throne of God for you even now. So grow in Christ, dear one. To grow in love. Grow in Christ. To grow in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love. And we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And Father, we ask that we would be conformed into the image of Christ and thus love to a greater and greater extent. Because all that is yours increasingly becomes ours through union with Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.